Not it's after like, the oh, we're going to try and leave. I don't know what's going uh, we're going to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness. And one other announcement before I turn to, turn to worship is um, we are in the process of working to get um, online giving going. And so just pay, be a heads up that sometime this week that'll go live on our website. We'll send an email so you can, yeah. you can know what to expect. All right, well, let's come now and turn our, turn our attention to our God, who is our very present help in times of trouble. And so we can, we're not going to be able to hear each other, but that's okay. So we're going to do this responsibly. It says, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. You are my refuge. Let us all now come by faith and say like with Jesus, like he did as he died on the cross. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. For you have redeemed me, O Lord, my faithful God. For my times are in your hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and our God, we thank you that you are our refuge and our strength. You are our willing and present and powerful help in times of trouble and loneliness and need. As we heard with talking with our kids that, that it, all it takes is weakness for your grace to come and, and work and do greater things in our lives than we can imagine. And so because of that, we have this great hope in the scriptures that we don't have to be afraid. And though it may seem like the world is falling apart, like the scriptures describe, like the mountains trembling and, and falling into the sea and falling apart, we have this great hope, this great promise that you are our refuge and our strength and you take care of us. So I pray that this would be our confession of faith today, that this confident trust in your help would become our story and be our story today and forevermore, and ask that everything we do in worship, even though we are separate, we are still worshiping Christ on his throne. And may his grace and his sovereignty and his power and his presence cause us to be still and know that he, Christ our Savior, is our God, our God in whom we trust. And so with that, Lord, we thank you for Jesus, our Lord, who in love, who came to be judged, who went through this uncreation, who knows what it's like to, to feel to, for the whole world to fall apart around him. As he went through cosmic loneliness, taking on the judgment we deserve, so that we now can say by faith, thank you, Lord, the Lord of hosts is with us. You are our fortress. So use this time, Lord, we pray, to, to form us into a people who are strong and courageous wherever we go, because you are with us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read... Psalm 31, so if you have a Bible, you can follow along. This is it's just a great confession of our faith that when Jesus was dying on the cross, these are the words that came to, him, came to mind. These are the, when you pricked Jesus, this is the scripture that bled out of him as he died. And so follow along. 
It says, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feast in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my eyes, my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol, which is the place of the dead, the grave. Let lying lips be mute, which speak instantly against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when, you, when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly he repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. That's a great comforting psalm. It's a lot to meditate on there. I encourage you to go back and read it sometime this week. Let's turn now for a moment to confess our sin together. Um, fear makes us do funny things and not always positive things. And, and so this is a great prayer based on Matthew 25, where Jesus tells us 
don't be anxious about anything because we are more of more value than the birds. If he takes care of the birds each and every day who don't plan ahead, how much more will he take care of us? And so I'm going to lead this prayer. And then there'll be a time of silent opportunities for you to pray to God in your home. And if you aren't sure what to say, if I scroll down, you'll be able to see some prayers that you can pray. Psalm 139 for your loneliness. Um, a prayer for medical providers as well. And then just a prayer for the church to grow. And these are all, this is a great opportunity to spend time directly talking to our God. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father and our Most High God, we are living in fearful times and frustrating times. And yet you still tell us to not be anxious about our life, to trust your fatherly care and provision. Forgive us, Father, for the times when fear and our frustrations became our master. It makes us grumpy and hard to live with. We know in our heads that we are of more value than the birds and the grass, and yet at times we have acted like frightened, lonely orphans. Holy Spirit, lead us now to cry out, Abba, Father. Remind our hearts that it was the grace of our God in Christ Jesus that brought us safe thus far, and it is his grace that will bring us home. Strengthen our hearts now in Christ, we ask. Amen. Take a couple moments to pray, confessing your sins, knowing Christ is our merciful high priest who knows in every way what it is like to be tempted, the way we have been tempted. Hear now these great words of comfort and encouragement. This is what we were using in March, Isaiah 41, which are, are highly, highly relevant these days, as they always are. It says, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, whom you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous hand. So we have, have that help, we have that friendship because of what Christ accomplished on the cross and rest in him. Can rest in him. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to read the text here in a moment. 
switch the share, you can, should be able to follow along with the text here. So one of the things we've been doing as we look through this passage is our, our pandemic sermon series is this, the gospel according to Naaman's slave girl. We're gonna, we get to see how the true and living God works to change us through trouble. And that's what we looked at last week, this great truth that God works through evil for, for our good. And that's what we saw in Naaman's story, that God was able to work through even disease and, and kidnapping to confront and change Naaman. And so we're going to dump, jump in again and, and pay close attention as we read to how Naaman is changed, the kind of person he starts as and the kind of person he ends up as when we finish. So this is God's word. It says, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman, Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, and thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man send, sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. 
and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant tool, two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. This is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and spoken to us right now in love. Let's pray. Father and our God, that there is no God likes you who pardons our inherent selfishness as well as our deliberate offenses against you, our creator. There is no God like you who delights in steadfast love, who is willing to forgive his enemies and work for their good. And so I pray, Lord, that for these next moments, you would use this great story to confront our sin, to com comfort us in our trouble, and to, above all, to, to change us by the power of your grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, let me get set up here. <coughs> One of the great parts of scripture as we get started is when we read this story of Naaman, we get to see the, the beginning, the middle, and the end, unlike those who are currently living in the moment. If you can picture Naaman's story as a great woven tapestry uh, where you can see all the different threads woven behind how God was working through this slave girl, through his trouble, through his own selfishness, and through his servants to change him. Um, we can see it. Naaman cannot. Right? In the moment, he was frustrated and, and miserable and, and scrambling for some sense of control as his world spiraled out of control. Right? Just what it's like for us right now. We don't know what exactly is going on. These things are not in our control. Our, our times are, are in God's hands. And see, Naaman, he had no idea that contracting leprosy would bring him face to face with the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the maker of heaven and earth. He starts this story as the last kind of person you would expect to become a humble servant of God, of Yahweh. He has no plan, right? This child-stealing tyrant is turned into a humble servant. If the cruel master is transformed by grace into someone who's going to be like the hero of the story, this young slave girl. And so what I want to do this morning is, is use our 20,000-foot view of Naaman's life to learn from this text how God uses troubles we're going through for our good to change us. Right. This trouble is going to make us bitter or better. 
as, I, as I've heard it said, that God's sovereign power is right now taking us through trouble we would never choose for ourselves. I wouldn't have, nobody would choose to self-isolate for weeks on end. But God in his sovereign grace and mercy and power is able to and does use trouble to change us into people we would never be if we hadn't gone through it. Do you believe that right now? You can say it again in a slightly different way. This pandemic, as frustrating as it is, as frightening as it may be for you, it's a tool in God's toolbox for him and his power and mercy to change us into someone who loves God and loves our neighbor because he's going to make us and form us to be like Jesus. If you could put it this way, Naaman's light momentary troubles in the beginning of the story are preparing for him an eternal weight of glory, something better than he could ever imagine. But he had to go through the trouble to get there. Right, so, so what we're talking about this morning is sanctification, the process of becoming like Jesus. Our catechism tells us it's a work of God's free grace. It's something God is doing in us. It's free. It's a gift. And he's changing us where, where we're renewed in the whole man, all, every part of us, after the image of God, which is Jesus. And we're enabled more and more to die unto sin and selfishness and enabled more and more to live unto righteousness, which is to live like Jesus. And so how is God, how does God use trouble to go to work on our natural self-centeredness? And that, that's where this passage is really helpful. I was, I was blown away by just how profound this story is the longer you, you, you sit in it. So I've got two points. God's work of grace can cause temper tantrums, <laughs> temper tantrums, or it will cause transformation. So that the, same, the same sun that melts the ice can also harden the clay. God's work of grace causes temper tantrums or transformation. So let's look at the, the temper tantrums here. <laughs> Excuse me. So if you look at the text, I love how human the reactions of these men are. Uh, when things don't go according to their plan, they, they react just like you and I. Right? The king of Israel, that, that guy, he has a pity party. He just freaks out and says, what is this going to do to me? He said, I can't fix this. He complains. And then, then Naaman, before he submits to God's plan for his life, throws a temper tantrum before he submits to God's grace, God's grace's plan for his life. So God is giving them both an opportunity to grow in faith and courage and humility. And this is such a human thing to do. They, they, they respond in whining and rage. <laughs> and both anger and pity parties, self-pity, are forms of unbelief. Uh, it's, it's trying to hold on to strength when God is teaching us how to be weak. And what it, what it shows me about me and, and, and you, that in that moment, I don't really believe that God can work through trouble for my good when I whine and complain and get, get angry. So look at the king of Israel's pity party for a moment. The, the, the recap is this slave girl, this young girl who's younger than 12. She could have been kidnapped as an infant. We're not really sure how old she is, but she's younger than 12. By faith and God-like God mercy tells her mistress that there is a prophet in Samaria who could heal her master. The wife tells Naaman. Naaman tells the king of Syria. 
And the king of Syria sends a letter to the king of Israel. And this is what's so fascinating about the story. None of the kings get it. Those who are strong are the fools, right? The Syrian king, the Hebrew king, none of them believe the simple good news proclaimed by the slave girl. They don't believe there's a prophet in Israel who speaks for the true and living God, right? You see it from the Syrian king. When this letter reaches you, know that I've sent you to the king, someone great, uh, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Which isn't surprising. He doesn't know Yahweh. He's, he's got a whole different belief system. But the king of Israel, and this is the point of the text, Elisha is a great prophet. The king of Israel should know better. He's supposed to be a man of faith. Now, you should have heard of Elisha, the one who raised a widow's son from the dead. I mean, these, these miracles went public throughout that day. And his own job description is to cry out for help to God. He's supposed to own his own copy, to write his own copy of Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then fear God and keep his commandments, to be a man of trust, to remember the Lord who saves his people from Egypt. And instead of faith, the king of Israel panics, and he chooses a pity party. He tears his clothes, he whines, he complains, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to heal leprosy? He just wants to fight me. Woe is me, it's all about me, me, me. <laughs> if there's no mention of Elisha, a prophet, or prayer, or faith, sound familiar <laughs> in the last few weeks? Uh, anyone else have a pity party or just, just get super frustrated because of how this pandemic is affecting me. I mean, extroverts are for sure. I'm sure there's an introvert out there who's had a pity party in the last few weeks. Now this, this is the point. Why does, why does the writer of Kings tell us about the king of Israel's unbelief? And that's, that's part of the point. It's telling us you need a king who does trust God. Ultimately, it's getting you ready for Jesus. But First and Second Kings, the book of Kings, is our prophetic books, and they are recorded to help us answer this one big question, which is if God loves his people, why does their life stink? Or more specifically, if God loves Israel, these people in the Old Testament, why did they end up in exile, in judgment, losing their money, power, comfort, and success? If God loves me, why is it so hard? And so one of the many reasons the book of Kings gives is because of the failure of the kings to both model faith and live faith and, and show, show God's people how to live by faith. So 2 Kings 17 says, And this occurred because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord their God, the same God who brought them up from the land of Egypt, and they feared other gods, not Yahweh. And they walked in the custom of the nations that the Lord drove out. So they acted like their neighbors. But they also took on the customs of the kings of Israel that had had practice. So the people were imitating the kings. And that's where some of their sin came from. They imitated the unbelief of the one who, who was ruling over them and representing them. Even though the Lord warned his people with every prophet and every seer, the kings and the people were stubborn and would not listen, right? So here's the point. 
of the text. Here's an opportunity for the king of Israel to learn faith, to model faith for God's people, to believe for them. So when they come to him for help, he's their refuge as he points them to God in faith. And instead, he chooses a pity party for himself. See, God's work of grace to change us, even through troubles, will always take you and I to a place of weakness, to a place of powerlessness, to a place where we have to say, God, help. So we talked about the kids, with the kids, right? We need to get to a place where we learn that God's grace is sufficient for me in my weakness. And this is what the king of Israel did not believe. God's grace is at work in his, this man's life, but instead of humbling himself in prayer, he panics. And so think about the king of Israel's job. His job as well is to model to the nations that God is with him. And Naaman is right there watching this grown man panic, the king of Israel. He's acting like he knows nothing about the Lord, the God of life, who sustains our every breath. Naaman is not being shown what faith in Yahweh looks like. And that's, that's really the point, that unbelief, what it does, it makes us whiny and self-focused. We can't see the people around us. We, when we forget the gospel, it makes me whiny and self-obsessed. And so that's why God's grace always leads us to this place of weakness and need and you are faced and i am faced with a choice i can think about me and me and myself i can hate myself because i'm too weak i can be frustrated that i'm not good enough i can complain because this is not going my way or you take the position of faith which is to look for help from god the maker of heaven and earth the one You you learn from the faith of this young slave girl whose life is not how she wants it to be, and yet she still acts as if Yahweh is with her. She's helpless, but she trusts that God can work even for her enemy's good. And so that's that's the first point is you can choose a pity party or you can choose to to see how God uses trouble to show us what it means to be human, to be 100% fully dependent on him. We're like children. It's God's design. Second form of unbelief here, right? God leads us through troubles. Some of us choose self-pity. Some of us can have thrown or do throw temper tantrums. Because that's what happens in the text. Elisha hears of this king tearing his clothes. He comes and tells the king of Israel to send Naaman to him so that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel And a prophet in Israel is someone that God has spoken to and works directly with in real space and real time. So Elisha is not so subtly accusing the king of Israel. Well, that's what happens. Naaman brings an absurd amount of money and wealth and stuff and horses and chariots. It's quite possible that Naaman has more money with him than the entire nation of Israel has at the moment. He's a wealthy dude. Only Elisha Elisha doesn't show up at the door. He sends a messenger instead and tells him to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and your flesh will be restored. Which just absolutely ticks Naaman off. He's livid. 
mean, he says, basically, I thought for sure he'd come out and do his magical hand waves and call upon the Lord God and heal me. I mean, basically, he thought Elisha was going to be his fairy godmother. Right? Say, bippity-boppity-boo, boom, healed. You pay a little money, get your cure, you go home, go back to life. But instead, Naaman has a temper tantrum. Right? Instead of listening, instead of humbling himself, he gets, he gets angry and racist even. Right? He says, why wash in the Jordan River? It's filthy. Our water is cleaner. It's better than this disgusting Hebrew River. I mean, that, that's the implication. So you know what's really frustrating and what's causing this temper tantrum? It's this big idea that God's grace, this command is just too easy. It's too simple. Just go wash by yourself in a river. It's too cheap. It's too free. See, Naaman wants some kind of input, some kind of participation, some way to hold on to some shred of dignity of being in charge. He does not like being treated like a servant. He does not like being told, you're on your own. God will have to heal you directly. He wants control. He wants to go back to Syria singing Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And you cannot do that with a sovereign God. As one pastor put it, the only way to become a Christian and live like a Christian through trouble is this. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. But most people don't have it. See, if Elisha is not involved in the process, then the only way Naaman can be healed is if God the Lord directly intervenes himself with his sovereign grace and power. No, no fanfare, no manipulation, just the God of grace healing because he loves Naaman and is kind and wants it to happen. So he throws a pity party because he's mad at grace. Right? It forces Naaman to act like a servant and take orders, to learn weakness. So what about you? What about me? What's causing our temper tantrums these days, our frustrations? It's not, it's not rational. Naaman is not acting rational at all. Sin isn't rational when we're confronted with our ugliness because it's like, come on, Naaman, just, just go wash in the river. It's not hard. Just trust and obey. The problem of our temper tantrums, it's showing us that our problem is bigger than disease. Naaman, Naaman shows us that uh, humanity's biggest problem is bigger than disease. It's sin. It's our self-centered pity parties, our temper tantrums that show up in ugly ways when we are mad that God will not let us sit on his throne. If you look at the text, Naaman's angry because he's not ruling the world. He's not in control. I mean, he hates this command to do something because he forces him to get off God's throne. And again, it takes the sanity of his servants to break through. That's who the heroes of the story are all the way through. It's the servant girl and Naaman's servants. They're the ones speaking sanity and truth. They are, the servants are instruments in God's hands to change Naaman. God is incredibly gracious to Naaman. The reason why is servants, these slaves, they're used to not being in control. That is their everyday existence. For us, 
Like Naaman, those with money, power, success, used to being comfortable, used to being in control. Right, this is hard. Showing us that we're middle class in spirit. You go back to the story, and this is the good news. They break through Naaman's rage. He hears them. He submits to the free offer of God to go bathe in the Jordan River seven times. He is healed. He's given the flesh of a little child. This grown man glistened like he was young again. And so just imagine that. All the scabs, all the marks of age, the scars from battle, the open wounds from the skin disease, now his skin glistens like a young child. He's given a new body, which is a great move on the storyteller's part. Naaman has the flesh of a child. What other little child is in this story? It's, it's the young slave girl. God is changing Naaman into a person of faith, like a child, like a servant. He's changing her to be like the little girl who works for his wife. When you're seeing Jesus' teaching lived out, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he calls to himself a child, puts this child in the midst of them and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's grace at work. See, the God of the Bible has begun to change Naaman from a cruel tyrant to be his humble servant, to be like this young slave girl, the one who has faith. So let me ask you this. There's a lot of cool stuff in this story, but how is God's work of transforming grace frustrating you right now? Because that's, that's the command right now is trust. Trust and obey. Be still and know that he is God. Just believe. And to us, it sounds infuriatingly simple. But it's, it's, it's much more than that. Right? Because part of what we're being called to do is admit we're helpless. To admit we're hopeless moral failures again, and that, that we're sinners again, that we're prone to pity parties and temper tantrums. To say I have a bigger problem than my circumstances. I, am, I take me wherever I go. And if I'm stuck at home with me, my problem is me sin. And we're being told to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came, he lived the life I should have lived, I died the death, he died the death I should have died, and now by faith, because I've admitted my weakness, I am infinitely loved more than I can imagine, filled with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power, the same resurrecting power that healed Naaman. Faith. Believe and all is forgiven. Believe and not only will you be forgiven, you'll be justified, you'll be welcomed by God himself, you'll be treated and honored as if you live Jesus' perfect life. And that's why it's so infuriating. Because it seems too easy and it takes us out of God's chair. Because it's a work he does for us and gives us the gift. He says, trust me, run to Jesus, he will cleanse you. Inside and out. Grace can make us mad because it puts great, proud, tyrant rulers and young servant girls in the same category. 
If you think you're great, God will humble you. You see in this text, he puts racial enemies in the same boat. Sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if you, by faith, accept the freeness of this offer, you have a God who is able to work through trouble to change us, to heal us. And that's what he does for Naaman. And that's, what, that's how we're going to end this. Now, I'll, I'll run through a couple of things of, of how Naaman changed, but Naaman believed the word spoken to him. He had faith. And faith in the Old Testament says, God will credit it to you as righteousness. Naaman believes. And it changes him. So how does, how does God change him? Well, look closely at the change. What God's grace does. First, it changes his thinking. Right? He comes back to Elisha and says, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth but, it, but in Israel. Which is a crazy thing to say for someone who is Syrian. Because everybody was religious. But everyone said, well, whatever, you have your own God. Whatever works for you. Whatever spiritual power will help you get money, power, success. So Naaman, the first thing that happens when he believes God's grace, as God's grace came upon him, uh, changes his whole relationship. He starts to believe and live out the first three commandments. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. I believe there is no God in all the earth except for Yahweh, the God in Israel. He is the God of the nations, not just a Hebrew God. That's why the story is here. So he's a believer. God has welcomed him. God has accepted him. He He has the same record of God's righteousness in Christ right now that we do. God's righteousness which showed up in Jesus years later. And so that's what happens when you become a Christian and God's grace goes to work and it starts to change how you think. And and that's what we're called to do these days is take advantage of some of the extra time to not just have that mystical experience, that feeling of being loved by God. That is absolutely true and important. It's also starting to have your mind changed. As Paul would say, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Naaman has already said, God healed me. This changes everything. How now should I live knowing that this God is real and is my king? And so he's, he's making all kinds of connections here. Grace does not tell, give us permission to turn off our brain. We, we use reason. We use our, our thinking. I mean, that's one way you can do that this week. I would encourage you, take time this week to think how this is a light momentary affliction. This is 2 Corinthians and Paul. It's a light momentary affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory to come. We're being called to think differently about our troubles because we have a hope, because we have a future. Second thing, grace changes. It changes his thinking. Grace changes his attitude towards his stuff and money. He no longer sees money as a tool to get what he wants. It's an opportunity for generosity, right? Because he comes to Elisha and says, here, I'm healed. Take a present from your servant. (laughs) Such an astounding 180-degree turn. He goes from bossing people around 
to getting livid when nobody will listen to him, to Elisha, I'm your servant. And I want to be generous. Money for the Christian is always an opportunity to show and model thanksgiving. Giving is an expression of our our gratitude. So Elisha refuses, so there's no confusion for Naaman. This had to be tempting. But he wants Naaman to believe and see that grace cannot be bought. It's a gift of God. It's free. Free to us, but infinitely costly to the God who sent Jesus to die on the cross. So for us, we're going to have all kinds of opportunities through this to be generous towards one another. It really does seem like, as far as what I'm reading and being told, there's going to be economic need going forward. And so we get to wrestle with this. Money is a gift from our God. It's an instrument to use to love our neighbors as God has loved us. So right now, we have this opportunity to say to our money, you are not my life. You are not what I use to paint the illusion that I'm in control. You're not the source of my safety. You're not the source of my security. My God is. Which sets us free to look at money as just what it is, a gift to be used to bless others and to care for those in our care. And so for you, if you have needs, don't be afraid to ask us. We want to give. Grace changes our relationships with our stuff. We can give it away like Naaman here. Giving is shaped by our gratitude. And the last thing you see, and this is the weirdest part of the text, I think, is grace changes Naaman's relationships with unbelievers, with people who don't know Jesus, who don't know this God. Because if you look at it, it says, after Elisha continually refuses the money, Naaman says, if not, then please give your servant two mule loads of earth from no longer going to offer sacrifices to any God but the Lord. But in this matter, forgive me when I go to the house of Ramon to worship there and I lean on the arm of my master. When I bow down, may the Lord forgive me. And Elisha says, go in peace. I mean, just imagine. You meet a Muslim, they, they get converted, they find Jesus, and you tell them to go home. And they ask, should I go to the mosque and bow down? Even if in their mind they're worshiping Jesus. We can have all kinds of debates about that. But here's the point. Naaman is already thinking about going home of being a Yahweh follower in a world that doesn't know him, which is great. And he's asking this question, how can I be a servant of God among God's enemies? Right. He doesn't say, I've got saved, I'm going to hunker down here in Israel and just stay away from the filthy sinners out there. He goes back. And he knows that there is a particular event. That, see, when you, when you worshipped your local god in, in Syria, it was a way of loving your country. And to go to the house of Rimon was like us saying the Pledge of Allegiance, putting your hand over your heart. And so what was going to happen is Naaman, with his baby smooth skin, He's going to go into this house. He's going to love his country. He's going to love his neighbors. And he's going to worship God as he bows down. And he asks for forgiveness. What's going to happen is the king's going to touch the evidence that God is real. He's going to lean on his arm. See, what would the king of Syria feel when he puts his hand on Naaman's arm? He'd feel the power of the God of Israel. He'd see the results of Naaman's physical and spiritual healing from Yahweh, not 
from Ramon. And so Naaman willingly goes back to be a witness to the king of Syria of God's power. And I think that's a little bit part of the reason Elisha says, you can go home in peace. And that, that, that's some good lessons for us. Grace sends us out to be witnesses of the change that grace has had on us and our troubles. So when people don't see us throwing a pity party and not freaking out or we confess it and say, you know what, I have a hope that will help me get through this. And you can start talking about the resurrection of Christ. Grace changes our relationships. We don't ask what we can get from them. We ask what we can do to serve them. And part of serving them is giving them a reason for the hope we have within us, Jesus. So conclusion, got that picture. This is the kind of person God's grace transforms us into through trouble. If you will admit your weakness, you'll be like Jesus on the cross, who rather than having a pity party says out loud, Father, into your hands I commit my life. I trust that you will not leave me in my shame. That's what we read in Psalm 31. You'll be a person like Jesus on the cross who rather than curse his enemies, cries out for their forgiveness. It's going to change your relationships with your neighbors. The gospel will change you. And a person who believes this gospel that is true, historical, and real will stop to think deeply about how to connect this God of grace to every part of our lives especially our troubles, because we worship a Lord who has been through troubles in every way we have, yet without sin. So this is the journey you and I are on. We are being taken through trouble like Naaman, and I pray that God's transforming grace would move you from your pity parties and temper tantrums to the place where he's leading all of us to trust at the foot of the cross in Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Let's pray. Father, we talked about a lot of things, but I pray what stands out is that you are with us in trouble and you are working through those troubles, and we thank you for the gospel which comforts us, confronts us, and changes us. And I pray for all of us that you would teach us, um, teach us faith as we uh, seek to be your witnesses among our community. Give us opportunities to love you and love our neighbor in this coming week as you have loved us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to turn it over to John, and we're going to attempt to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness. Um, You should have the words. John is unmuted. Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you. All right, well, that's good. You might have to unmute your microphone, John. I did. I need to get closer, maybe. Maybe I can turn it up. Let me try. Still can't hear you. Yeah, we can hear him. Wait for it. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you. I got to shut up Alexa here. I think Nate's speakers are muted. Well, I can start. Well, let me just do it on faith. Maybe Nate can't hear me. I'm glad everyone else can. Here we go. 
Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, not thy compassions may fail not. As thou hast been performed, will be. Great is my faithfulness, great is my faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I had needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars and forces of join with all nature in an equal witness to thy gratefulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto thee. Pardon for sin, and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today, and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine, with ten thousand beside. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. end with a benediction. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. May our risen Lord be with you all. Amen. Go now as his witnesses. Well, at this point, if you want to stay and hang out, I'm going to set up some breakout rooms, but if you, you want to go or need to go, that is fine. But